Just now we're going to read together from God's Word. Um, we're still in Colossians there, chapter 3, page 1184. So Colossians 3, page 1184. Today we're going to read the first 17 verses of the chapter together. Uh, Jenny Moore is going to come and read for us. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, thank you, Jenny, for that. And um, folks, just keep, keep three Colossians 3 open there before you. So we landed last week in these early verses of Colossians 3, some of the most amazing verses in the whole of the, the New Testament, I think. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hid now with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I've been trying to learn that and it mostly stuck. I hope, hope I got most of it right. This is incredible. We're in Christ, Paul says. We've died, we're raised, and we're seated at the right hand of our Father God. Our lives on earth, we live now as people who have died and have gone to heaven and, and have returned to live our life on this earth. Wow. Wouldn't that change just about everything? Only, we said this last week, only if we see that other world will we be able to live with greatness in this world. Only if we keep our hearts and our minds there will we live well here. Paul spends the rest of this letter to the Colossians after, after laying this incredible theological foundation. He, he spends the rest of the letter telling us what this life's going to be like this raised, this died, raised, seated with Christ life. 
He tells us in chapter three to four how it's going to change our lives in, in a number of different spheres, in the church, in our homes, in our workplaces, and actually everywhere in the world. So this morning, we're going to keep moving through chapter three, and we're going to see how, how this resurrection life that we live in Christ changes our life in the church. By the way, in case you're wondering why I'm I'm reading these verses as having to do particularly with our life in the church. We need to remember what we're dealing with here. This letter that Paul wrote, this isn't a letter to a person. It wasn't written to you or to me or even to an individual living in Colossae. He tells us, chapter 1, verse 2, that it's written to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters. So it's a letter to the whole community. But when the letter, there's more to it than that, when the letter arrived, it wasn't photocopied and handed out for you to read at home or sent as an attachment to an email for you to look at and digest. These members of First Colossae, or or whatever they call themselves, the way they accessed this letter was by hearing it read together from the front of the room. So everything that Paul says in there is for all of them and for all of them together. Unless he tells us specifically that he has some other sphere in mind, then he's always talking about in here, us, our shared life in the church. So we're thinking this morning about the, the resurrection life that Jesus calls us to, that Jesus is, is putting inside us and how it changes our life in the church. Actually, he's been talking about that probably since verse 5 in chapter 3. In verse 5, we we touched on it very briefly. He lists some enemies of the resurrection life that need to be put to death. In verse 8, he describes some, some bad tenants who need to be evicted, who need to be got rid of out of our lives, anger, rage, malice, and so on. So really in verses 5 to 11, he talks about the resurrection life in terms of what what needs to go. What what needs to go before we can live this kind of a life. And now today we're we're really focusing on on the latter verses that Jenny read. Beginning in verse 12, Paul starts to talk about the positive aspects of this resurrection life in the local church. In these verses, I think, I think we can find three things. Paul tells us what the resurrection life in the church looks like, how we can cultivate it, and why it's possible. The what, the how, and the why. So what does it look like? Paul's using a lot of good metaphors. That it helps me to remember things when he talks in these terms. He talks about the resurrection life in the church as a wardrobe to wear. Look at verse 12. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Open that wardrobe door, you see five garments straight away. When he talks about bearing with one another, I think he's probably elaborating on patience, so I'm not going to add an extra garment for bearing with one another. I'll keep that as, as patience. But he goes on, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So there's a sixth garment, forgiveness. And then he he doesn't want us to miss the overcoat, the, the garment that completes the wardrobe. So the seventh garment, he says, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So we'll look in this wardrobe and we'll see the kind of clothes that we're to wear when we're living this resurrection life, when Christ's new life is at work in us. We're people who are clothed increasingly in these kind of qualities. This is the kind of community our church should be. It should be described in those kind of terms. Last summer we were preaching a a series here on the fruit of the Spirit. We called it Becoming Like Jesus, but it was dealing with uh, just one verse in Galatians chapter 6, which is famously known as the fruit of the Spirit. There's a good deal of overlap between what Paul says here and what he was saying there in Galatians. 
And that's worth noticing. And, and actually, that gives us a very quick way of reminding ourselves of something we said back then that can avoid a, a big mistake for us today. When we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, I, I don't know how many of those sermons you were here for, but I hope at some point you heard one of the preachers say that we can't grow the fruit of the Spirit ourselves. We expect to see them grow whenever the sap, when the this Holy Spirit of Jesus is the sap that flows through our veins, then this fruit will grow in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit isn't something you can force, not something you can decide. It's an outworking of a new life in you. Well, I'm going to say that it's the same with this metaphor. Whatever's in that wardrobe that Paul points us to here, we can't hit the high street and go and buy these clothes or, or go online and order them in. These are, these are clothes that we'll only ever have if the Spirit gives them, if he clothes us in them. Remember, this is the resurrection life that Paul's talking about. It's those, for those who have died with Jesus, for those who've been raised with Jesus to an entirely new life, for those who are seated with him, those who are in Christ, those who set their minds and their hearts on these beautiful truths. Paul chooses to elaborate on a couple of the seven garments that I've identified. So I'm going to follow his lead and just do that for a moment. He elaborates on the need for patience with one another. Bear with each other, he says. Do you know what that means, to bear with people? Anybody here married? Or in a family? Or share your life with any other human being? Okay, a few of you smiled. We're to bear with each other. So look around you. You don't have to actually look around you if that feels weird or uncomfortable, but if you can, do. Look around you. There are people here, aren't there, in this room? And we're to bear with each other. And the important thing, I think, to remember in all of this, whenever I'm weighed down by the weight of all the bearing with usings that I have to do, I have to remember that you're bearing with me. Probably much more. But this is what we do in the family of God. We're patient and we bear with one another because the Spirit of Jesus is cultivating that in us. Verse 13, the second thing that he elaborates on, just very briefly, he says, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I, I wonder here if Paul's deliberately got in mind the teaching of Jesus. You know that parable about the servant who wouldn't forgive. He had been forgiven loads, but he wouldn't forgive. The, the person who doesn't see how much they've been forgiven struggles in the end to forgive. It's those who know the joy, who have a, a strong and a renewing sense of, of how they need God's grace themselves. They're, they're the ones who are able to, to share it. Pass it on to others. Folks, we've thought here for a second about the seven garments in the wardrobe of the Spirit. I, I want to back up for a second and think about what, what kind of an impact that ought to have on a community like this, on Kirkpatrick Memorial. It seems to me that throughout the, the whole of the first half, those 17 verses of uh, Colossians 3, there's a huge contrast Notice this with me if you haven't noticed it yet. Verses 5 to 9, Paul talks about some really grim stuff. Grim qualities that, that we know in ourselves and, and know in people in general. And compare that with what we've just read here in verses 12 to 14. World of a difference. 
world of a difference. To, to really get the point that he's making here, I want you to imagine for a second that you've just moved uh, new to Ballyhackamore. Uh, maybe you have this morning. If you have, welcome. It's good to see you. Maybe you've moved, imagine all of us, you've moved new to Ballyhackamore. You're getting to know the place and you're getting to know some of its uh, communities, some of its groupings, some of its uh, social bodies. Imagine for a second that you meet a body and it's described almost entirely in the terms of verses 5 to 9. Everything you read there. Look at that list. That's what you get when you're with these folks. And then imagine for a second that as you're out and about, you encounter a totally different community. Verses 12 to 14, a community described in those terms. Which of those two communities do you want to be a part of? It's, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Folks, whenever a person who doesn't normally come to church arrives with us, they're making that kind of a, an assessment and an evaluation. It's, it's very, very real. People are wondering who we are. If we put the name Christian right over where we are, then people are saying, well, if, if this is what it's all about, then, then I wonder what kind of people it produces. What are they like? Imagine if they saw verses 12 to 14. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love. Who wouldn't want to be part of a community like that? like moths to a flame, iron filings to a magnet. I wonder, are we? I wonder, are we growing more and more like that? So what does the resurrection community in the church look like? It looks like that, that wardrobe and, and those beautiful clothes, those virtues of Jesus. Second question, how do we cultivate that? I think Paul answers that question a little bit in verses 15 to 17. He tells us about a heart that we can have. He's told us about the wardrobe we can wear and now about the heart we can have. And, and there's a good balance here between personal spiritual growth but also cultivating that in spiritual community. First of all, the personal growth. I see a couple of aspects of it here. First, he says, verse 15, let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. What's your peace reading this weather? Out of 10. I'm not talking about your circumstances. I'm talking about Let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. Open your heart to the peace that God has already offered you in Jesus Christ. Jesus' work is done, folks. He's died, so have I. He's raised, so am I. He's seated, so am I. There's a great peace. there if we can only open our hearts. If all those things are true of me, if I've died, if I'm raised, if I'm seated, then what could possibly undo me after all that? Yeah, my circumstances might be hard. Yes, I may be misunderstood by people, but I'm, but I'm in Christ. I'm seated and I'm at peace. It's when we have that peace with God ourselves that we find ourselves able to enjoy peace together. Share that with each other. Since as members of one body, we were called to peace. Folks, we can live at peace. That's something we can cultivate. There's a second aspect of this personal spiritual growth that we can cultivate thankfulness. Do you see it there? Verse 15. He says, be thankful. 
Verse 16, he, he encourages the Colossians to sing with gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17, he brings the whole of life under the scope of gratitude. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times in three verses, he says gratitude, thankfulness. Thankfulness is one of the big themes in Colossians. Paul gets it started by by giving an example, by showing us how to be grateful. Three times in the first chapter, he talks about his own gratitude to God and for the people. But then he turns to the people in Colossae and he invites them to cultivate gratitude. Folks, how do we cultivate the resurrection life? We open our hearts to the peace of God and we learn gratitude to God our Father. Those are quite, um, quite personal things, things that we can, can all be getting on with whatever stage of life that we're at. But there's a, a corporate aspect to this. Paul tells us where he wants us to cultivate this community. He says, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in your hearts to God. It's one of Paul's great one another passages. He basically says you can't follow Jesus on your own. There's a lot of stuff that we have to do with each other and for each other. And notice what Paul says about this community. The word of God He describes it in ways that makes it sound like a living thing. It it has to live among you, to dwell. Teach one another, he says. Admonish one another. Press God's word into your lives. Folks, that's, that's my prayer for Kirkpatrick Memorial. Not just on Sunday mornings as I teach, but on Wednesday nights as we go a bit further with a Bible passage in book by book as we read the Bible and try to get it for ourselves. Press God's word into our lives. Lord, folks, that might be a good point to pause for a moment and think about our corporate life together, our corporate worship here. He's encouraging us to make sure that we're all immersed in in biblical and worshipful community. How's that going for you? I need to be really careful here because you're, I'm preaching to the converted in terms of you know, coming and making sure that you're part of our, our worship gathering. Maybe somebody's listening on the podcast, so um, listen carefully at this point. How's that going for you? You're here today, but how often are you here? I have a sense that if everybody who belonged to Kirkpatrick and who worshipped with us actually showed up on the same Sunday, we'd have seats in the aisles. So that means that some of us or a good number of us aren't choosing to be here every time that we can. Whenever we're not here, we, we miss an opportunity to be in God's word. And we miss an opportunity to to worship God together. We, in that moment, miss a chance to cultivate the resurrection life in us. Let's make a point of being here. We are here today, so I'll talk about what it's like to be here. With what sort of posture are we coming? Are we sliding in late because the queue in the coffee shop was too long? It's too long every week. Are we sliding in in that kind of a posture? Are we here physically in the building but, but actually sitting back, all cool detachment, emotionally disengaged, 
putting in an hour before we go home. When we come with that posture, I, I think we're going to miss something. I think we're going to miss a chance to be cultivated, to have the resurrection life in us, stirred, nurtured, fed, and grown. Worth thinking about, isn't it? Is my posture at corporate worship helping me to give my best to God and to receive the most from him? So Paul's described the, the resurrection community of Jesus, told us what it is. He's told us how we can cultivate it, but still we're wondering. This community that he's described in verses 12 to 14, they don't exist, not in the real world. There aren't people who wear these garments. How is this possible? Why do we even imagine that this could be? Verse 12, I think, Paul reminds us of the truth that just might make this possible. He reminds us that we're God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Each of those three phrases would make a brilliant sermon in itself. Chosen people. We could spend ages on that. Holy, we could talk about that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk about either of those. I want to talk about dearly loved. You are. You are dearly loved. Last month in Book by Book, we were reading Mark's Gospel together, and I saw something I hadn't really seen before. Um, so there's a passage in Mark 1 where Jesus is baptized, and a voice from heaven speaks down over him, and the voice said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. So the Father says to the Son, Son, you're dearly loved. I did know that passage, but here's the bit I didn't know. Halfway through Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, Jesus is on the mountain. He's transfigured with Moses and Elijah. Again, there's a voice, and the voice this time says, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Whenever the Father wants to tell us anything about Jesus, he can't help but saying, Whom I love. I love my son. I love my son. But this is where Colossians 3 needs to do a bit of work in us. For the person who's trusted Jesus, we're in Christ. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. Everything that God says of Jesus he wants to be saying of us. He looks at the men in this congregation, men who have failed him a million times, and he says, you're my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And he looks at the women in this congregation, weighed down by whatever expectations or sense of inadequacy we're struggling with and he says you are my daughter whom I love I'm so pleased with you he loves us and that makes all the difference in the world I want to push this one moment further and I'll finish. How does knowing that God loves us change things? How does it help me move from being a verse 8 and verse 9 kind of person to being a verses 12 to 14 kind of person? Well, it's whenever we own the love of God everything that comes with us, that, that acceptance, that grace, that favor, then we're much, much less prone to those sins 
that Paul talks about here. Sins like anger and prejudice, they feed on insecurity. Show me an angry man and I, show, I, I see somebody who, who doesn't know that he's loved, doesn't know that he's accepted unconditionally. Show me a woman who's full of prejudice, unwilling to accept others, and, uh, and you show me somebody who's just no confidence that she's accepted just as she is. Folks, this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ just changes everything, turns us upside down. Folks, when I've become convinced that God loves me, I have a new confidence, a new place to stand, a new place from which to offer love and acceptance to all. This is powerful, powerful stuff. Folks, we're going to celebrate communion together just now. We're going to remember together the death of Jesus. But I want you this morning to remember his love. Our hearts are hard, aren't they? They have to be. Because we've been hurt too many times before. Try this morning to open it up and to allow him to say to you, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the table of the Lord. He invites all who love him to sit with him. Sit with him round this table. Okay, get that image into your head. We're coming for dinner here. Jesus invites us as friends to his table to share this joyful feast. All who confess Jesus Christ as Lord from whatever branch of the church you come you're welcome in his house and at his table. Folks, we're going to invite everyone who wants to come to this table. If this bread and this wine, you know, we, this is, these are precious reminders of Jesus' death for us. If you're somebody who hasn't quite understood that or owned that for yourself, if it feels a step too far to, to take the bread and wine, please don't feel any awkwardness about that. Just Stay in your seat. Don't come forward when I invite folks forward. But, but watch. Open your hearts to what's going on here. See if this might not be for you. Folks, we're going to say, uh, we're going to express our faith together as we use the words of the Apostles' Creed. Just a chance to say, here's what we, what we believe about Jesus. Uh, maybe we'll stand at this point just to say that together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the, somewhere, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the of the body, and in the life everlasting. Amen. Folks, we might have to learn that off by heart just to make sure there aren't any more uh, PowerPoint glitches. Take a seat. On the night of his arrest, the Lord Jesus took bread 
And after giving thanks to God, he broke it and he said, this is my body, it's for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in memory of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you came among us and you died. But thank you that we're died too now because you did it. Father God, thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead, that your great power that worked in him is now at work in us too. We died, but we're raised. And Father God, thank you for the beautiful thing you've done. You've brought Jesus, you've set him by your right hand and you've said, son, I love you. I always did. I loved what you did when you went to earth, when you lived that life, when you died that death, but now I've brought you back to be with me. Father, thank you for this glorious truth that we too are seated, our lives hid with Christ in you. Lord, help us today as we take this bread and wine to set our minds and our hearts in this place and to say as we leave here today that I'm in Christ, that I'm fed on Christ, that I'm nourished by Christ, that he is all. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do this in obedience to Christ's command. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it to remember me. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, redeemer of the world, grant us your peace. Folks, just now we're going to come forward together. This is the way we do things in Kirkpatrick Memorial. If you're a guest, don't, don't worry. Just watch what the others are doing and join in. We're going to come forward to the front here to receive bread and wine. There'll be uh, elements will go into the congregation. So if you're not able to come forward but would like to receive bread and wine, just stay in your seat but raise your hand to let the distributors know that you would like to receive where you are. There's gluten-free bread. Uh, if you pay attention, you'll, you'll see that. We're going to sing a couple of songs together. Man of Sorrows. Uh, it's one that really brings us to the, the heart of the gospel, Jesus' work on the cross. But then a second one which invites us to, to look into the community, into you know, in, in the light of the cross of Jesus, what kind of a family is God calling us to be? We're going to sing, Behold the Lamb. So let's, uh, let's come forward, receive these elements. We'll sing these songs and worship as we do. One, one last thing, don't, don't eat or drink. Just take the elements back to your seat. And then at my invitation, we'll all do that together once everybody's been served.
and eat the body of Christ which was broken for you. Do this to remember him. This cup is the new covenant in Christ's blood, which was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you have done to draw our lives into yours. Thank you for taking away our junk and for giving us your beauty. Father God, thank you for looking on us and reckoning us like Jesus. Thank you that our lives are hid in him. Lord, send your Holy Spirit on us today that in everything that we say and in everything that we do, we might serve you better and love you more. Keep us, for we know that you're able to bring us in the end into the communion of the everlasting love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Folks, I forgot. Oh, goodness, it seems like it's turned nighttime here. Um, I forgot to ask you to sign in 
uh, to tick your name on the, the sheet if you're a communicant member of our church. If you're not a communicant member, don't worry about that. But if you are, just give us a tick to let us know that you've been here today. When I was preparing this sermon this week and thinking about our gathering this morning, I was reminded of a, a quotation that I've shared with you a number of times before, but I just couldn't get it out of my mind. Alistair MacLeod, the Canadian novelist, in his novel, No Great Mischief, a story of a lot of, a lot of turmoil in a family, a lot of heartache and angst, he finishes it with this line. He says, all of us are better when we're loved. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. If only we could know that, that would change just about everything. Dearly loved. <laughs>